Support for this podcast is provided by Cressa. Cressa is the occupier's champion, the world's premier corporate real estate advisory firm, exclusively serving startup businesses and major global organizations alike. As a Portland pillar for over 25 years, Cressa partners with its clients throughout the entire project lifecycle, from workplace strategy and discovery through the deal transaction and project management delivery of space. Cressa partners without conflict and applies integrated expertise to make your business better. Go to cressa.com Portland to connect with the Portland advisory team. From That Cast Creative, I'm Dan Bruton, and this is the PDX Executive Podcast. A show where I talk with inspiring leaders who are shaping the future of Portland, Oregon. Every week, I sit down with business executives, startup founders, and community leaders to dive into their career journey and get insights into the impactful work they're doing in our slice of the great Pacific Northwest. Hey everyone, and welcome to the PDX Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Bruton. This next guest's fourth time, I believe, on the podcast, and he's the person that really keeps a pulse on what's going on here, uh, business-related in Portland, in Oregon. So welcome back, Mike Rogaway. And thanks very much. I wouldn't have guessed it was four times, but when I think back on it, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, I think it's four. So we've been doing this for two years. I've kind of have you on for at least you know once or twice a year. So you know here we are. And for, for folks that don't know you, I mean, you're the business reporter here for The Oregonian. Been here yeah, how long? since 2004. I cover mostly technology, but more and more my coverage has expanded to the economy and other kinds of businesses as well. Right. And then you kind of have a counterpart that uh, Jeff Manning that covers some of the footwear industry and other things, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Jeff is focused on Nike and commercial real estate and all kinds of other things that impact business like Portland State, like Concordia. Mm. Oh, that's a big story right there. <laughs> okay. So I mean, what I like to do when I have you on mic is really just like, let's chat through some uh, of the news. But it, I think a great place to start is, uh, you know, economically, here we are, 2020, Portland and Oregon. How are we doing? Yeah. So it it's interesting. I, I We've begun running a, a weekly economic snapshot. And this week's snapshot looks at one barometer. Tim Dewey at, at the University of Oregon publishes a, a compilation of economic barometers in the uh, University of Oregon Economic Index. One of his barometers is trash. And so he compiles all the trash that's produced at various metros around the state just to take a look. What does that tell us about the economy? And when we look at the graph for trash, uh, we see, particularly in the Portland area, he collects it from metro, our trash volumes fell sharply in the Great Recession, and then they rose really dramatically to an all-time high. We're producing more trash than ever uh, hmm. by about 2017. But then the last two and now into the third year, it's really leveled off. And it's possible that there's suddenly been a spike in recycling in the metro area, but far more likely that this is one more indicator that our economy, while not you know, in decline in any meaningful way, maybe a few sectors, but has really leveled off. You know, we've had population growth has slowed, job growth has slowed by a number of indicators, things have cooled off. Now, last time we talked, I, there were probably some potentially worrisome recessionary indicators right. out there. Mm -hmm. I don't think people see that right now. You never know. There could be an external shock. The coronavirus could be a lot worse than people are. Yeah. are 
anticipating, or it could last a lot longer mm -hmm. than people are anticipating and create a real slowdown in global production and consumption. But right now, I think what we're seeing is, uh, at least in Oregon, you know, a pretty steady state. And that's hopeful and, and probably good news. Yeah, nothing to worry about. But I, that's interesting, the trash index. I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. But wow, okay. It's just one of many, many barometers that he uses. But it seemed to do a pretty good job of reflecting where we're at and where we've been. Yeah. Now, as I say, recycling or other things could affect it. But it's interesting to see the graph. Well, let's dig into some of the um, things you've covered recently. Um, let's start with tech. Uh, last year, banner year for tech investments here? Yeah, it, it sure looks like that when you look at the top line numbers. You know, it was our, our biggest 800 million plus. You know, I, we're getting close to the dot-com billion dollar range that we had in the either 1999 or 2000 in terms of startup investment. But I think the number is somewhat misleading because a huge sum of that money, more than 300 million, went to one company, Vacasa, which isn't strictly a technology company. They're vacation property rental management. Mm -hmm. uh, they're thriving. There's no doubt about it. They have identified and developed a market there. They have Oregon hasn't produced any really big company in decades. I don't know what the last one would be. Maybe in focus or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Uh, probably emerged starting in the 80s. Uh, and like you said previously, a lot of those companies have been very like B2B niche. Yeah. So to have a consumer facing yes. is unusual. That's a great observation. Yeah. That's true. And more and more you're running into Vacasa. Certainly if you own a vacation home, <laughs> uh, they'll be they'll be pitching you. But yeah. if you're running at Sun River, if you're going to Manzanita. I spent uh, a good amount of money with Vacasa. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, their their whole model yeah, they're pitching not so much you and me who are renting vacation homes, but the people who are fortunate enough to own them, right. they're saying, well, we can we can adjust our pricing dynamically and get you the most, the highest price for your property and the most money. Mm -hmm. And they are buying up little vacation rental management businesses in markets across the, the country. They're not a competitor to Airbnb, not a direct one anyway. They sort of compete with VRBO. Um, they're they are capturing a big part of the market and their investors clearly think there's something to that. Their, you know, their last investment valued them at, at more than a billion dollars, Vacasa said, which isn't a surprise. They've raised about 500 million. So yeah. if they weren't valued at more, right. at, with, yeah, probably. <laughs> uh, yeah, there'd be something going wrong. Yeah. Uh, so it's not shocking, but we haven't really had a company emerge like that in a long, long time. So with their CEO stepping down, um, bringing in some other management, IPO in the near future or who well, knows? Well, probably or? not. I, I would be very surprised if they did that before uh, there was a a long-term CEO in place. Candidly, I, I don't know the vacation industry well enough, although I briefly worked in it. Uh, okay. I, I, I used to work for Wyndham for a short oh, period okay. of time in their marketing, marketing department. But I don't know the industry well enough to know if it's more likely that somebody comes along and buys them and incorporates them. Vacasa last year bought Wyndham's vacation right. rental management business. Uh, so they're sort of a behemoth in this space. Vacasa is now a big player or the big player. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. But could they make sense as part of some larger company's portfolio? I don't know the space well enough. And 
in recent years in Oregon and even outside Oregon to a greater extent. That's happened. It's also possible that some other private equity firm, a buy and hold type firm, could come in and provide right. the early investors their exits yeah. and and take hold. Uh, or they could IPO, and we haven't had an Oregon IPO of of any size since 2004. Oh, wow. Who was that? Well, there were two, McCormick and Schmicks and uh, Cascade Microtech. Oh, okay. Uh, That seems like two lifetimes ago. (laughs) Neither IPO went very well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, And so, uh, now we did have one uh, last year. Last year? Might have been two years ago now, across the river in Clark County, uh, Mm. Light went public. Oh, that's right. And they did... They did very well initially, but they have been badly hurt by the trade dispute. And, and they just said yesterday they expect to lose, I think, $8 million in sales in the first quarter alone due to the coronavirus. Mm. Oh, geez. Yeah. Well, let's talk about CEOs real quick. I know uh, we were talking this before recording. It's not your really what you cover, Nike, but new CEO there. And yeah. I think you have some ob- observations of well, why they brought him in. You know, their the new CEO, they brought him in. Uh, he was on the board. Mm-hmm. Uh, it may be that Mark Parker, their longtime CEO, was ready to go, uh, Was was wanted to retire. It may be they were changing focus. It's really hard to read the tea leaves sure. from the outside, particularly for someone like me who doesn't follow the company closely. Right. But it's clear they brought in a former eBay CEO, a former uh, telecom exec, somebody who plainly knows technology and is going to be taking Nike and what they've discussed for a long time, a more digital focused consumer strategy. Mm-hmm. So then uh, just this past week, he's had this shakeup. He's pushed out longtime executives and, and brought in new people. What Jeff noted in his article that's really interesting is he didn't bring people in from outside Nike. He pushed out some insiders and elevated others. Now, he's not new to the company. He'd been on the board. So he right. has some some familiarity with who's there and what they're doing. Uh, but clearly, he wanted his own team, but he wanted people who were Nike insiders. And, you know, Nike has a very strong corporate culture. That's probably not shocking, particularly mm-hmm. when you have a CEO who was on the board, but not inside before. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we'll see. Mm-hmm. We'll see. I think we can expect some kind of different message out of the company. Uh in the, the coming months, but it, whether it's how it presents it or whether there are some strategic changes in store, we'll see. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. Um, well, t- tech-wise, what are, I always love, this is my favorite thing to talk about, just early stage companies that might not be on my radar that you've had a chance to maybe not write about, but just hear about, learn about. Anything? Well, so I, I'm just writing just today. Uh, there's a Corvallis company that unless you're in the chip industry, and even if you are, you may not know, a company called Impria okay. has just raised $31 million. They're down in Corvallis. They spun out of Oregon State in 2007, I hmm. think. And their round, it's the first big round in Oregon this year. And so they are making photo resist uh, for lithography. Uh, their investors include Samsung, Hynix, TSMC and Intel, all the big chip makers Hmm. are investors in this little company in Corvallis. And it's because their product is absolutely key in a new lithography tool. It's going to sound really nerdy, but bear with me. (laughs) Uh, Extreme ultraviolet lithography, EUV, is something the chip industry has been waiting on for two decades. It's finally coming to market. This company, Impria, they make it quite a bit better, apparently. Hmm. Uh, And so... Intel, which stumbled badly on its 10 nanometer chips that came out just late last year, many years behind schedule, 
for their next generation that's due in late 2021, seven nanometer chips, they are going to use this EUV technology. Hmm. Impria in Corvallis doesn't make the tool. That tool's a $125 million tool. It's the size of a school bus. It's huge. They make the photoresist one element of it, but it's a key element. And that's why all the chip companies are on board. So it, it was developed technology at OSU and had, um, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it was developed initially at OS, OSU, but EUV is sort of way behind schedule. It's sort okay. of been waiting for the rest of the industry to catch up with mm -hmm. it. So yeah, they've been a spin out for 13 years almost at this point, but now the technology is the underlying technology is ready for what they offer. And so it's been sort of percolating, percolating, yeah. percolating. It's interesting. And Corvallis has got a couple other, you know, like the nuclear, is it New Fusion or what's the company? Uh, a new Scale. New Scale. Yeah, yeah, that's down there. And some of these other ones are doing interesting things. So I don't know what it is about well, Corvallis. It, yeah. New Scale, it's a good parallel that you draw there because that's another one. It, it's been around for well over a decade mm -hmm. and it's this modular nuclear reactor and just getting approval from the federal government to make a new nuclear reactor design is a decade plus process. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. But, and so it's really hard to know, is there still going to be a demand for nuclear power when you're starting off? Well, it's still not clear, but people, utilities in the U.S. and overseas are interested in this and are moving forward with plans to put it in place, assuming it gets federal sign-off. Yeah. And so... Uh, and New Scale probably will get its bite. We'll see, you know, if the product and the market converge as they did with Impria. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they, they seem to have an opportunity. Well, Corvallis making stuff happen down there. Yes. <laughs> yes. Any other tech companies up here maybe that are? Well, I think one thing that's that strikes me uh, over the last year, back in our last big startup boom happened in the, tail end of the Great Recession. And it was all focused on downtown Portland. Everything was coming downtown. Uh, and this time out, it seems to be a little bit more in the burbs. You have, I think we may have talked last time about realware over in Vancouver. Yeah. It's an industrial, uh, essentially a smart hard hat. It's Google Glass, but with an actual application. You wear a hard hat, there's a lens and a camera and a microphone attached to it and an earpiece. So you can essentially receive instructions or communicate with a supervisor while working on a, on a repair or installation right. or something like that. They have some, some um, big manufacturers who are very involved and a few very invested in their technology. Mm. You have things like Big Leaf Networks, which I believe is in Beaverton. Uh, there are others that are sort of the satellite now, and it's a return maybe almost to the 80s and 90s that, that folks are. Yeah, and I mean, it's I, I live in the Burbs, and it's something I'm seeing a lot. I mean, I live in the West Side here in Portland, and that's natural. Maybe some of these in, former Intel people are just staying out there doing some things, but... Uh, I know Beaverton has been really welcoming to come, like an RFPIO, if you've heard oh, of that. Yeah, I certainly you know, know RFPIO. That's a great example. They were in the round at one yeah. place. They were at City Hall, I mean, yeah. literally yeah. <laughs> at yeah. one time. And, you know, it, it's still, if you want developers, enge software engineers, you probably want them to be, you probably want to be downtown yeah. because that's where the engineers want to live. Right. Or at least the software engineers. But if you need space... There's still something to be said for the suburbs. It's a lot cheaper uh, for yeah. real estate. Mm -hmm. uh, Realware is an officer's row. It's, you know, a 
18th, 19th century building, perhaps, mm. uh, you know, just, just east of downtown Vancouver. So, hmm. you know, those things are, are happening. And then, uh, of course, there's the, uh, we talked about this a little bit last time, Discover Org, but they got yep. a huge investment since we've, a, we've talked. Right. right. They, the huge investment they combined with another company. Discover Org is now called Zoom Info. That's right. They took the name of the company they bought. Zoom Info is better known. It's business intelligence. Uh, you know, you see their building if you're driving north on I-5 out of Portland or south on I-5 into Portland as you pass downtown. Uh, you know, they're they're definitely positioned for an IPO. They confidentially filed, which means they don't hmm. they started the mechanism for an IPO, but they don't have to disclose their financials yet. Hmm. Uh, their investors are clearly looking for an exit. You know, I'm not sure that Discover Org or Zoom Info. You know, they're not developing an enduring technology. Essentially, they're they're developing business leads uh, for marketers uh, targeted to individual people within companies. And essentially, they're doing that by sort of calling around and surfing the Internet and finding out who has which role at which company. Right. It's a very useful service for marketers. I'm not sure that you'll see industries or things like that spin off of it. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we talked about our last, perhaps our last big company back to InFocus. Well, you had a constellation of electronic display companies, Planar, Clarity Visual, InFocus, um, Pixelworks, all emerged from around that space. Uh, I think ideally that's what Oregon would like to see again is, you know, some new industry spring up and, and um, you know, have things spin off of that. And of course, InFocus and Planar came out of the tech ecosystem. Yeah. Uh, well, a couple other things in a tech world. Um, you know, we've had some bigger companies here for a while that have these small offices. Uh, someone like a Google is building a new office yeah. and like, hey, finally maybe putting a little bigger flag. And that has a lot to do with their cloud business. Yeah. I know folks that work there. So um, yeah, Google, keep- Apple, Amazon, uh, they're all expanding uh, in downtown Portland, mm-hmm. which, you know, isn't shouldn't be any surprise i don't think it's so expensive in seattle and the bay area i think all large tech companies now have kind of a a large outpost ecosystem mm-hmm. apple has long had a software outpost in vancouver they still do they quietly had a, a software engineering outpost in southeast portland the portland business journal reported that they're moving to larger quarters and we reported that Google's moving from an old bank building uh, downtown into the old Meyer and Frank building, right, overlooking Pioneer Courthouse Square. So yeah, they're they're growing, and Amazon continues to expand, both in the Oregonians' old building mm-hmm. on thirteen twenty Southwest Broadway and Kitty Corner uh, in the a new building hotel office that has gone up across the street. Oh, that's right. And also, I read yesterday in uh, PBJ, which they're kind of like a sister. Yeah, competitive same, siblings. Same corporate of, owner. Okay, yeah. Portland Business Journal, I would say competitive si- cousins or something. But yeah. they reported, and maybe you did too, that um, Amazon's putting these kind of last mile facilities. Yeah, th- I, think, I think we can expect that Amazon and all warehouses will continue to expand. Uh, you know, yeah. so yes, they're going to have two new warehouses in Oregon I, and the Portland area. I don't know that that has any economic impact, but right. it's... Yeah, it is part. The, here, here's the the bigger story. There, it's the tearing down and redevelopment of Portland Meadows. Mm-hmm. That will change, uh, maybe not a lot more jobs associated with that property, but it will change the logistics ecosystem in the metro area because it's right off the freeway there. Mm-hmm. So, if you're a real wonk for getting things around, uh, the 
the disappearance of Portland Meadows will matter. Yeah. I mean, I have one of my good friends who was uh, just uh, headhunted to join the company that bought all that, uh, Prologis, which yeah. is a huge company and um, had some insight into the plans. And like I said, you got it. It's kind of wonky because it's the logistics stuff. So, um, but we'll, we'll, we'll see. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's Amazon's other or it's big Portland warehouse. They call them a, a fulfillment center is out in Troutdale and that's there used to that used to be how far you would have to go for a big logistics center on uh, the old FedEx facility out there but or sorry not the the FedEx facility went out there it was the old uh, smelter facility out mm. there but uh now and then, then there were some on Swan Island now you'll have some at Portland Meadows I don't know if it's the optimal use of the region's industrial land yeah. but it will help things get around faster sure. within the metro area. It's hard to beat. I ordered something from Amazon nine o'clock last night and it came. I just got a notification like 10 minutes ago. Right. I mean, that's I, crazy. I mean, if you want that quick turnaround, <laughs> yes, we are enabling that. First, first world uh, issues here. So, well, let's get into maybe politics a little bit. Yesterday, uh, and you know, depending on when this post, maybe a week or so ago, you wrote about the new corporate tax yeah. and how much confusion is going on with that. Can you shed a little light on, on Yeah, that? so it's it's a it's an unusual tax uh, and it's a brand new tax model for Oregon. This this was a fight in the legislature a year ago and actually got settled in the legislature pretty quickly, uh, mostly because the Democrats have a supermajority and and pushed it through. But we have now a gross receipts tax. It is a very small gross receipts tax, 0.57% on commercial transactions within the state. And there's a threshold, right? Right. Uh, uh, so for businesses with sales above a million dollars. Gross sales. Yeah, yeah. gross sales. Yeah. And then they can, and those are sales within the state. You know, if you're selling, at least in theory, to California or China, those sales are not subject to it or um, hmm. because they're not sales within Oregon. Yeah. So for instance, Intel, which produces billions of dollars in chips every year, not subject to it. Um, uh, although if they sold their chips... I, I think there's some, this is part of what the story was about. There may be some elements of this that aren't clear, but in theory, things that you're selling to buyers out of state wouldn't be subject to it. Uh, the money goes to education. We have historically had a poorly funded education system in Oregon relative to other states. Yeah. This is something like a 17% boost in state education funding, plus millions more for early childhood education. So it, it may make a substantive difference in the education ecosystem, K through 12 anyway, yeah. in Oregon. Businesses, though, are having to adjust to a tax that is unlike anything we have right now. The gross receipts tax really catches people off guard because whether you're profitable or not, hugely profitable, losing money, you still got to pay it on your commercial activity. Yeah, And so that really bugs low margin businesses. Also, Sales taxes in almost every state other than Oregon has a sales tax, but you don't pay it. You don't pay it at each level of the supply chain. This tax applies to each level of the supply chain. Now, for some businesses that you know source from around the world, it doesn't really matter because you know you're not paying it on something you get from Kansas or Washington or China. But if you're in agriculture, you know, dairy, um, beer. Uh, forest products; those are things that are come out of raw materials grown, developed in Oregon, processed right. in Oregon, sold in Oregon. You may be paying it at multiple levels, so that zero point five percent might start to look more like one point five percent, two percent. 
So it remains to be seen, you know, how profound an effect this will have. Overall, state economists think the effect will be negligible on our economy. Okay. But for certain industries, for certain businesses, it may have quite a profound effect. For all businesses, as yesterday's article focused on, you got to figure out how it works. Right. Yeah. And it didn't come, you know, it was a fairly short bill. It didn't come with detailed instructions. It told the Department of Revenue, you figure it out. And so the department spent months coming up with draft rules, finally issued the first of them in December, and has continued to issue them since. So businesses are reading those rules, trying to adjust and say, okay, this counts, this doesn't. And then you have uh, the first uh, uh, payment is due. You have to pay, submit your payments to the state quarterly. It's due yeah, April okay. 30th. Yeah. So the rules are still being written, but yet you have to collect the money right. and pay the state. And it's just not, so, hmm. so it's what's particularly bothersome, I think, is that it is so new and so different to Oregon. Yeah. And businesses are, are adjusting to it. There will probably be a shakeout period. The first year, year and a half may be painful. There may be continual adjustments. And so yeah. there may be a constant sort of low headache for businesses. Yeah. And it's not like you noted in the article, you can add it to like a cost of like the cost and then this percentage sales tax because then that's legal because it's right. not technically a sales it's tax. It's not a sales right? tax. Yeah, yeah. It's not assessed on the buyer. It's assessed yeah. on the seller. It's a gross mm -hmm. receipts tax. Mm -hmm. Now you can charge obviously whatever you want, mm -hmm. but- you know, it's a matter of supply and demand. How will your customers respond yeah. if you try to increase your prices? You know, if if you had room to increase your prices, you probably already did. Mm. So, hmm. so, but I, I do yeah. know that some businesses are tacking it on as a line item. And it's interesting to see, readers have been sending me their receipts, what businesses do. Because as I say, it's 0.5%, 0.57%. But as you noted, First million is exempt. Mm -hmm. Then you can subtract 35% uh, uh, of your capital and labor costs. And home builders can exempt an additional 15%. So nobody's paying 0.57%. Right, right. Some people might be paying, you know, I saw one yesterday that was 0.37. I saw one this morning that was 0.5%. Yeah. Uh, so we're seeing these amounts on their bill. And I... I don't quite yet on your receipt or your invoice, and I don't know yet quite what to make of it. The amounts, at least on consumer receipts, are like seven cents, fifteen cents. Well, does that is it worth the trouble for the businesses to do that? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Now, if you're a big business, maybe all those pennies add up. Mm -hmm. uh, but we'll see. I mean, the intent is good. I mean, hopefully the money goes to the right place. That's always my secondary <laughs> that it does go to where it's intended. Well, it, I'll, <laughs> I will say this for the, the state. Yeah. The, you know, this, unlike Measure 97, which was so controversial for many reasons, it was a much higher tax. It was um, more than double the size of this tax, perhaps triple the size of this tax. So it was a much higher tax rate. Uh, it applied to more industries, including utilities, which are exempt from this, and groceries. Uh, and it just put the money in a big pile uh, in, with the state. This one, the state went through a long process of determining how school districts can spend it and how the state will monitor it. Mm -hmm. Whether those mechanisms will prove effective remains to be seen, but there was some effort to put into making sure that it will be used okay. effectively. So we'll see. 
Well, let's, uh, I just saw your editor uh, pick in the window here. So we'll, we'll wrap it up <laughs> shortly. But uh, I, I always like to talk about, you know, me formerly, briefly being in the media industry. Like, uh, what's your thoughts? Where are we at? Well, it, it's. And get I, in and just yeah. clarifying, like, uh, there has been some turbulent times yeah. for the media business. Yeah, I, so. I, I think, I, I hope everyone knows at this point that daily newspapers in particular have taken a bath. And, we're not, we certainly aren't immune from that. I think what's been clear in the last couple of years, and we've talked about this in the past, is that like so many other things, news scales online. Mm-hmm. So for high audience publications, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, they are thriving. Mm. These are not just good times. They are probably their best times. All have a paywall. All have a pay meter. Mm-hmm. They're all doing great. Almost every publication now has a pay meter uh, mm-hmm. or some other business model. We are moving in that direction, but moving slowly as we figure out how to do it. You know, among regional dailies like us, there's been a lot of pain in uh, private equity firms have bought them up and essentially leached whatever profits they can out of them while cutting expenses. And they've left sort of skeletons. And that's been bad in, in many places. Mm-hmm. I think, as we may have discussed last time, there are at least five regional dailies that have different ownership structures, you know, in San Francisco, in Seattle, in Boston, Minneapolis, and Houston. Um, uh, those papers are doing well. Mm. They're not, maybe not where they were in the heyday, mm. but they're doing well. They've patched together a, a variety of business models. Uh, we're fortunate. Our paper has family ownership. Uh, you know, our, our owners aren't trying to leech every penny out of us. That said, we are subject to the same market forces. And candidly, we moved far too slowly toward a, a pay meter. Mm-hmm. And our sub, uh, our circulation is much lower than it is than it was a decade ago. And so we don't have the tools to bring our legacy readers over online. Yeah. yeah. So we're we're facing some challenges, but there is some cause for optimism, I think. And you know, if there's anything good, it's very inexpensive to distribute news online. It was yeah. very expensive to print and circulate a newspaper. Hmm. So if you can get to a model where people will pay it, there's an opportunity. Yeah. I mean, obviously I've seen too, uh, so Warren Buffett just shedded or is trying to shed his, his holdings. Yeah. In Nebraska and, and, and elsewhere. And then the other, what's the other family one that's gone bank? Oh, McClatchy. McClatchy. Yeah. Yeah. But. So it's, it's tough. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but there is a model that works, mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. or there are models that work. There are, there are various yeah. opportunities out there and it's a matter of adapting those models to mm-hmm. each situation. So we'll see. And a couple of things I know, uh, your editor, uh, uh Therese, posted we did away with the comments yes and uh which i always love entertaining uh, <laughs> the most fun to read uh can you talk a little about uh yeah you know, why I, I think i think you may have seen on twitter you know as reporters we we were pleased to see that mm-hmm. comments work really well on sites that have the resources to monitor them and curate them closely so you right, see yeah. good comment communities Uh, in the New York Times does an excellent job or in really small, hyper small publications for a targeted market like Bike Portland here in this market. Mm -hmm. You can monitor those and and sort of guard against the trolls. When you have as many people reading our site as we do, it's really not practical at our scale 
to devote the number of people we would need to monitor the comments. Yeah. Uh, so the comments had become a sewer. Mm -hmm. This was an impediment to our reporting because uh, commenters would attack our sources oh, wow. uh, in vile ways, not for ideological disagreements, but Just because to. of their gender or race oh, or things yeah. like that. Uh, I mean, that's that's endemic across the internet, yeah. but we hadn't done anything to guard against it and didn't have the resources to do mm -hmm. it. So that was a difficult situation. We also discovered that almost nobody reads the comments and only a fraction of almost nobody actually comments. Yeah. Well, I don't, I didn't comment. So I didn't right. read. So I'm not, I wasn't <laughs> so, trolling. I mean, anybody. probably everyone clicks on them occasionally, <laughs> yeah, 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 but, yeah. but in terms of our audience, it's no effect whatsoever yeah. okay. uh, because so few people read yeah, them. Yeah. Uh, and so it hasn't, certainly hasn't cost us anything in terms of audience. In an ideal world, yes, you would love to have that feedback and that community. You know, we still have that. The letters to the editor rem remain a great way to communicate because mm -hmm. we still have tens or 100,000 plus readers who, mm -hmm. and many of them are, are quite interested in letters yeah. to the editor. So if you submitted a comment, Pretty much, you were the only one who read it before. If you read a letter to the editor, right, it'll be a much more wide. So, read. from a, you know your perspective and your fellow journalists, it's like you know, and good I, riddance. Well, yeah, in an <laughs> ideal world, we'd have a vibrant, curated comment where we'd have a variety of perspectives, people yeah. raising intelligence points and treating the people in the stories and other commenters respectfully. Mm -hmm. That takes resources to do, and those are resources we don't have. Uh, so. It was definitely a sensible decision and candidly long, long overdue, which it was clear a, a decade yeah. ago this wasn't working. Well, Mike, as always, super informative. Thanks for coming back on. Yeah. Dan, great to see you. Yeah. I'm an optimist about what's going on here in Oregon and just a lot of uh, great stuff. And hopefully we'll, we'll see what happens. So thanks, Mike. Yeah. The PDX Executive Podcast is a production of That Cast, a Portland, Oregon podcast agency that partners with brands to create custom podcasts. You can learn more at thatcast.com. And please take a moment to subscribe and rate the podcast as well.